Agencies are finding out there's a lot more that goes into trusting the vendors they work with besides what they can easily see. New tools are giving agency acquisition and cybersecurity officials something equivalent to an MRI scan of companies. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with more on how agencies are using these technologies to better secure their supply chains. And Jason, they've been talking about supply chain risk management for several years now. What is new here? What are they trying so that they can see inside the companies better? Tom, the amount of data agencies have access to today versus three, four, five years ago or even 10 years ago is incredible and overwhelming. Now, there are companies that provide data analysis and other services. We, we report with them and, and talk about them quite often. There's so many other factors that come into play when an agency decides to work with a specific vendor, and those factors, too, are ever-changing. Let's just take the use of purchase cards. Agencies love to use them, but there's little oversight or accountability when it comes to managing supply chains. Tom, I did a little bit of research. Agencies spend about $30 billion annually through about 100 million transactions on more than 3 million purchase cards across the government. So what is happening behind the scenes? Hey, I'm going to go use my purchase card at company X on Amazon, on on overstock.com or whatever, buying something. Do I know it's safe? So it's easy to see how agencies can buy counterfeit products or, or products infected with malware. Demetrius Davis is a principal system engineer for the Defense Department's 5G cross-functional team. He works at MITRE Corporation. He says there's a tension that agencies need to balance. They need to buy things quickly to say, let's say, support the warfighter, but they also need to ensure that what they're buying is secure and doesn't introduce vulnerabilities into the systems or networks. We need to have a plan laid out. We need to have certain standards that we put down. But, you know, there's got to be a, a point where we identify what's critical and say, okay, I really need to have high intel. I need to have rigor placed in this area, but in this area, I'm going to have to accept some discomfort. I'm going to have to work with a vendor that I may not know and have a long history with, and that, that person may have relationships with people I don't really have a close relationship with. And we're going to have to take baby steps and small iterative cycles to be able to get there. That was Demetrius Davis, a principal systems engineer for the Defense Department's 5G cross-functional team who works at MITRE Corporation. He was speaking at the ATARC Mobile Summit earlier this week. All right. So data, of course, is the fundamental requirement everywhere. What tools do you think agencies are using? What are you seeing that they're using to make sense of the data that they've got? What a lot of agencies are trying to do to deal with this uncomfortable feeling that Demetrius Davis just talked about is turning to things like artificial intelligence, uh, the general services administration is one example, is using AI to do what they call pre-award assessments of a vendor. They started that earlier this year. Now, previously, GSA would focus on its efforts mostly after the award, which means they were potentially putting the government at a greater risk. Naki Nuweki is the GSA's Director of Cybersecurity Supply Chain Risk Management in the Office of the IT Category in the Federal Acquisition Service. He also spoke at the ATARC event where he says GSA is using several illumination tools to gain better insight, especially around the use of Chinese telecommunications products that were prohibited under Section 889. There are counterfeit issues, and um, there are also, you know, affiliates and subsidiaries that we want to get insight to understand exactly where they're coming from. And, you know, there are also issues, of course, foreign ownership and influence. So these are some of the insights that those AI-enabled illumination tools will provide. GSA's Naki Noweki says AI tools give acquisition workers mapping reports and visibility into those products. And then the acquisition workers rely on several tools. It's not just one tool to get that best data and the best information. Tom, the goal of these pre-award audit reviews is to protect both the agencies and industry before they get on the GSA schedule. Noweki says it's a lot easier for him to fix some problems before a company has a contract than after they already get on the schedule. The goal 
goal is to create a secure marketplace, ensure vendors are compliant with 889 initially, but eventually other requirements such as potentially software bill of materials or supply chain risk management plans as well. Nowicki says this effort has resulted already just on the 889 stuff in 20 findings so far that has helped ensure companies are complying with that prohibition, again, against Chinese-made telecom products from Huawei and ZTE. The initial use of these pre-award analyses were so successful that GSA actually plans to expand them to other contracts and in areas beyond 889. Now, the key here, Tom, is automation, too much data tools. And that's where Brian Papp, who is the cyber supply chain risk management lead at CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, says to deal with all this data and not enough people, that's what agencies need to fully understand this information and drive decisions. There really is a very shallow pool of subject matter experts out there in this area. Mm -hmm. And because that pool is so shallow, we have to turn to automation to help us, you know, identify risks, reduce risk, um, be able to uh, work with vendors on what we're finding out about, you know, their products or their companies and be able to uh, mitigate problems quicker, faster, and communicate with other elements with within our own organizations so they're made aware of these issues or these threats faster. Again, this is Brian Papp speaking at a recent FCW FedRAMP summit. All right. So you've got the technology needed to delve into what might be an issue with a particular contractor. It seems like there needs to be some cross-functional training so that acquisition and cyber people can work together on this problem. You're absolutely right, Tom. There's this tension, as they talk about, about acquisition. People wanting to do it faster, but cyber people wanting things to slow down and make sure there's rigorous. And then there's also the idea of standardization across the government. Hey, make sure justice is doing the same thing as Treasury, or at least starting at the same baseline. And, and again, that's where the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and DHS comes in. Over the last six months or so, CIS has led two efforts that they're calling them learning agendas. CIS's PAP says these learning efforts focus on software validation and verification and software illumination from a standards or requirements perspective. We want to determine when enough is enough. You have 651 capabilities, but that's that's crazy to think that we can have a vendor capability that will be able to meet all of those. So what makes sense? What is a nice to have? Push that off. And what does the future need to look like, right? So build to scale and build for five to seven years from now. So that's that's the approach I'd like to take moving into marketplace, leaving that extra room for growth. This is Brian Papp says there's learning agenda efforts will help agencies have a better picture of what their supply chain risk management compliance will look like, what gaps currently exist in the standards, let's say from NIST or other standards bodies, and where can tools like AI, machine learning, or other technology help out? At the same time, Tom, CISA has also launched another pilot program. They're calling actually this one a real pilot versus just a learning agenda. This is with six CFO Act agencies. And PAP says this initiative is trying to determine what it will take to to develop a cyber supply chain risk management plan for headquarters and for the operational bureaus, and, and, and really how does it flow down successfully. The pilot developed a guide, templates, resource plans, funding charts, other, other documents to help agencies get started. Because PAP says if agencies can create that governance and that strategic plan, then they can start to figure out what capabilities they need that will help them deal with their challenges the best way. A lot going on, Tom. Obviously, a lot more that will continue to happen. And just a quick question, if this effort is focusing on the cybersecurity risks that might be in the supply chain, can the 
same tools and technologies and data applications be used to look at contractors from other compliance requirements? In many ways, they already are. As you heard GSA's Naki Nuweki talk about, it's not just cybersecurity, but it's foreign influence. It's the relationships they have further down the supply chain. GSA, CISA, other agencies are definitely looking at this from a, here we go, Tom, a holistic perspective, not just a a very specific cyber perspective. I just think cyber plays such a big role because of how much software agencies are using and how much industry is deploying software through the cloud and using outside, you know, non, if you will, American or non-allied development teams. They are, there's a lot of concern about, okay, what could be in that software and do we know it? And, and again, that's why the push around zero trust, S-bombs and the like as well. But the supply chain view is much broader than just cyber. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. 
I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to 
take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.